Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you may know, every episode in this season was inspired by a request from you, our listeners, made on our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Today's episode came from a post made on our forum by Jim. This is Jim from Beaverton, Oregon. I would love it if you did a story on early film star William Haynes. He was once the top movie star in the late 1920s, and it's amazing to me how many people don't even know about him today. He lived in Hollywood during a time when being openly gay was the real box office poison, and still he chose to throw away his movie career just to live authentically. Will you bring this forgotten star back into the spotlight? Thanks, Jim. As you just heard, the story of William Haynes is remembered, if it's remembered at all, as the story of the first openly gay Hollywood star. The legend holds that Haynes was a major box office draw who was fired by Louis B. Mayer for refusing to drop his live-in boyfriend and marry a woman. This isn't totally inaccurate, but the truth of Billy Haynes' life in Hollywood is a little bit more complicated, and in order to understand it, we have to talk about Hollywood in the 1920s, which was not unlike Paris in the 1920s in that it was a place in which young and or rich people had the space and the freedom and the protection to explore new and different ways of living. 
And then we have to talk about what started to happen in the 1930s. As in Hollywood, the studios adjusted to the new types of content suited to the coming of sound. At the same time, the wider American culture, with spirits low thanks to the Depression, started to recoil from the permissiveness of the previous decade. And the censorship office, headed by Will Hayes, thus began to amass more power. Haynes was born on the eve of the first day of 1900, and his biographer, William J. Mann, stresses that he was the ultimate child of the 20th century. And as such, Haynes thrived during the Roaring Twenties and struggled to adapt to the limited opportunities of the following decade. And then, he reinvented himself in time to take advantage of the prosperity and consumerism of the mid-century. And through it all, he was, proudly, one half of Hollywood's first openly gay marriage. Join us, won't you, for the story of William Haynes, the silent star turned gay icon, William Haynes grew up in the South, and in 1916, at the age of 16, he made his way to New York City. At the time, just before the First World War, New York City was known as the City of Bachelors, and teenage Billy fit right in, finding work in a rubber stamp factory and finding a room in a boarding house. But in April 1917, Billy was summoned home. His father's cigar business went bankrupt, and George Haynes himself suffered a breakdown. Billy returned home to Richmond, Virginia, and earned an exemption from the war due to his responsibility to support his family, but all he could think about was getting back to the big city. He finally made it in the spring of 1919, and shortly thereafter, he found a room in Greenwich Village. By this time, the village already had a reputation as a bohemian mecca, and specifically, a safe enclave for sexual outlaws. Gay men and lesbians, sure, but also anyone else, male or female, who wanted to have a sex life before or outside of or contrary to conventional marriage. Being gay wasn't a political thing in the 1910s and 20s the way that it would become later, and boundaries between identities were maybe more fluid than they are today because there was no benefit for most people in defining themselves as any one thing outside of the norm. You were either living what straight society deemed acceptable, or you weren't. And if you weren't, you could either pretend that you were, or you could find a community in which, at least for a part of the day or night, you wouldn't have to hide. And you could do what you wanted to do, without necessarily conforming to a specific label. Billy had always been attracted to members of his own sex, and he had never gone out of his way to hide it. In the village, Billy lived with roommates, Mitchell Foster and Larry Sullivan, a couple who would stay together for 40-odd years and didn't try to hide the fact that they were together. Billy's friends at this time included two other men who lived together, an Australian artist named Jack Kelly and a British vaudevillian named Archie Leach. Jack and Archie would both eventually end up in Hollywood, Jack as the costume designer Ori Kelly, and Archie as Cary Grant. Stories vary as to what happened next, 
But somehow, Billy was entered into New Faces, a contest sponsored by the Goldwyn Studios in Hollywood. And he won. The female winner of the contest was Eleanor Boardman, and both Haynes and Boardman were offered studio contracts. They arrived in Hollywood in March 1922, and Boardman swiftly moved on to major films and marriage to the powerful director King Vidor. But it took Haynes more time to settle in. Between 1922 and 1925, he paid his dues playing small roles in tons of movies. But he still couldn't seem to break through. Boardman was a beautiful girl who was easily plugged into conventional films of the day. But Billy had something different. And it wasn't that it was so obvious that he was gay, because it wasn't. Louis B. Mayer would reportedly not even realize it for years. In conversation, off the clock, Billy was all winks and eye rolls, wisecracks and double entendres. He was what used to be called a cut-up. But though his personality might have later been defined as camp, that didn't come across on screen. In the silent era, it was what you looked like that really mattered. If anything, Billy's look fell in line with comedy stars of today. With his cherubic face and smiling eyes and sturdy frame that could tilt towards bloat if he wasn't careful, Billy was unthreateningly handsome. There was a little bit of Paul Rudd in his dark hair and impish grin. You could see Haynes today playing the quote-unquote straight man in an Apatow buddy movie. His looks were just one aspect of Billy's persona that made him very modern, and movies hadn't yet totally figured out what to do with modern men. They were just starting to figure out what to do with modern women. Haynes' arrival in Hollywood came less than two years after two events occurred in May 1920. F. Scott Fitzgerald published his short story, Bernice Bobs Her Hair, and Olive Thomas starred in a silent comedy called The Flapper. The flapper trend would reach its tipping point with the 1923 release of the Colleen Moore film Flaming Youth, a culture-defining hit which Fitzgerald took partial credit for, writing, I was the spark that lit up Flaming Youth. Colleen Moore was the torch. It's probably partially the fault of films like Flaming Youth that our image of liberated young people in the 1920s tends to start and stop with young ladies with bobbed hair and rolled stockings, smoking cigarettes and dancing the night away. But just as young women were using the kind of fatalistic modernity that was in the air as an excuse to relax the strict Victorian gender codes of their parents' generation, so were some men. Within the Hollywood party culture of the 1920s, Billy was able to find his niche, just as he had in Greenwich Village. Haynes became friends with Paul Byrne, a writer whose sex life has been the subject of debate for 80 years. The one thing everyone seems to be able to agree on is that Paul Byrne had this habit of becoming obsessed with women who he wouldn't be able to satisfy sexually. Byrne allegedly once proposed to Barbara Lamar, a gorgeous starlet with emerald eyes and shiny black hair, who turned him down, leading Byrne to allegedly put his head in the toilet which he then flushed repeatedly, ostensibly hoping to drown. We should try not to laugh at this, given that Burns' story ends in tragedy, but we'll get to that next week. In any case, Byrne introduced Billy to Barbara, who soon became one of Billy's closest companions. That Barbara Lamar and Billy Haynes were briefly positioned as a couple may have been the Hollywood publicity machine doing its thing, 
But Haynes' biographer, William J. Mann, believes that their romance was real, at least for a while. At some point, they had a falling out, and Lamar married another guy and never spoke to Billy again. Barbara Lamar, Eleanor Boardman, and William Haynes were all cast together in Souls for Sale, a Hollywood satire written and directed by Rupert Hughes, uncle of Howard Hughes. Souls for Sale would give Haynes his first decent role, and from there, Goldwyn's publicity department started making a real effort to promote him. But in the spring of 1924, Goldwyn Studios was bought and rolled into the new entity that would come to be known as MGM. Early in his tenure as studio chief, Louis B. Mayer gathered all of his new employees onto the lawn of the studio lot and made a lump-in-throat speech about how every film made under his watch would have some kind of lesson to impart to the viewer. Mayer vowed, MGM will reach a point of perfection never approached by any other company. It's easy to imagine Billy standing off to the side during this speech rolling his eyes at the pomposity of it all. A lot of MGM employees would eventually choose sides. You were either a Thalberg partisan or you rode for mayor. Haynes would later admit that he was blind to Irving Thalberg's faults. But it was just the opposite with mayor. I remember everything good about the one, everything bad about the other. During his early years in Hollywood, though Haynes got a few good parts on loanouts to Columbia, his home studio wasn't doing much for him, and he didn't have real opportunities to distinguish himself as an actor or a star. Instead, he distinguished himself as a social animal. At first, Haynes was known as a guy prone to having affairs with women as well as men. In addition to Barbara Lamar, he dated Norma Shearer before she married Irving Thalberg, and reportedly cracked that she was... The one woman who really got a rise out of me. He had an eye for future stars. Multiple reports suggest that there was at least one dalliance with a very young Clark Gable. And Billy had a crew of young ladies whom he'd escort to parties and speakeasies. He took Joan Crawford under his wing, beginning a platonic but very close friendship that would last for decades. Billy took credit for helping Crawford ditch her Oklahoma accent and for helping her establish a public profile by encouraging her to go out and get photographed at parties. Crawford met Haynes when he was filming the picture A Slave of Fashion with Norma Shearer, who Haynes was dating while also seeing fellow MGM star Ramon Navarro. Another MGM contract player with a grudge against Haynes decided to tell Mayer that Navarro and Haynes were sleeping together. In the 1920s in Hollywood, it wasn't exactly news that two actors were having a relationship. A lot of things that might have been frowned upon elsewhere in America went on within the film colony without judgment or repercussion, as long as those things were kept discreet. Louis B. Mayer didn't care what people did in the privacy of their own bedrooms— as long as it didn't reach the public and get in the way of the studio's ability to sell them as stars. In 1925, Navarro was far more valuable to the studio than Haynes was, and because he was a sex symbol and action star, it was much more important to preserve the illusion of Navarro's hetero virility. Mayer didn't want to believe this news at first, and then his way of dealing with it was by telling Haynes that he was personally hurt. When Haynes was less than contrite, 
Mayer wanted to fire both him and Navarro, but Thalberg talked Mayer down. Always it would be Thalberg who had Billy's back, who protected the actor from Louis B. Mayer's anger. And soon enough, Haynes, like Navarro, was too valuable to let go of. His breakout film was called Brown of Harvard, and in it, Billy played a carefree college athlete and ladies' man whose bromance with his sickly male roommate dominates the picture. The good part in the movie was supposed to be the roommate role played by Mary Pickford's brother, Jack, but Billy stole the show. Finally, critics took notice of Haynes, and more importantly to MGM, so did the public. Brown of Harvard grossed nearly twice as much as it cost to make, and Haynes followed it up with another hit, the romance Tell It to the Marines, in which Haynes competed for the heart of Eleanor Boardman with Lon Chaney. From 1926 to 1931, Haynes would be ranked as one of the top ten box office stars in Hollywood. By 1929, Irving Thalberg was holding up Haynes as both the prototypical symbol of male youth of his day and also the new model of a male romantic star. The idealistic love of a decade ago is not true today, Thalberg said. William Haynes, with his modern salesman attitude to go and get it, is more typical. By the time Thalberg made that statement, he and pretty much everyone else in the Hollywood community knew that Haynes was, for all intents and purposes, married to a man. In 1926, on a trip to New York while on the cusp of his superstardom, Haynes had a whirlwind fling with a 21-year-old former sailor named Jimmy Shields. When Haynes returned to L.A., he brought Shields with him and moved his new boyfriend into his house and got him work as an extra at MGM. Following the example of his friends from his New York days, Billy was intent on living with Jimmy without embarrassment or apology. That Haynes was living openly with another man, thereby destroying any possibility that he might not be gay, initially did absolutely nothing to impact Haynes' popularity around town or at his home studio. Billy and Jimmy were one of the few couples to make it into Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst's inner circle, meriting invitations to send Simeon nearly weekly. And the local movie press knew, too, but nobody had any incentive to publish an expose about it or anything. If any journalist had, they would be frozen out of MGM for the rest of time. And at this point in time, as long as they weren't hurting anybody, which they weren't, nobody cared. Sometimes Billy would get asked a softball question about his love life, which he was always able to deflect with a wisecrack. Journalist and subject would wink at each other, the actor would be classified in print as an eligible or confirmed bachelor and everyone would move on. When an earnest journalist from out of town asked him, when are you going to get married, Billy? Haynes would announce that he was engaged to an eminently ineligible lady, usually frumpy slapstick comedian Polly Moran. During the 1920s, Haynes always found ways to answer questions about his personal life without either lying or telling the truth. It wasn't evident to every reader at the time, but... Reading some of his quips today, his use of sarcasm and irony speak volumes in their own way. If nothing else, Haynes was always looking for an opening for a body wisecracker double entendre. When an MGM voice coach informed Haynes that his vocal technique was, quote, lip lazy, Haynes fired back, 
I've never had any complaints before. In fact, William Haynes was actually better set up for the transition from silence to sound than many stars. His voice was robust and not thickly accented. Also, unlike stars like John Gilbert, whose essential thing was made obsolete by sound film, Billy's signature in silent films had been wisecracks, inserted as intertitles to make it seem like Billy was a master of wit and timing. In fact, he was, and Haynes was easily able to perform the same trick accomplished by the intertitles as a talking comedian. MGM were terrified to transition to sound, so they took baby steps, and because Billy was one of their few stars who was equipped to make the transition quickly, it was Haynes who was doing much of the initial stepping. The studio first paired music and sound effects with a print of the Haynes vehicle, Excess Baggage, in 1928, and they tried the same trick with Haynes' next release, Show People, King Vidor's star-studded satire of Hollywood in the late silent era. With his next film after that, MGM decided to shoot a reel in full sound. They had to borrow a soundstage at Paramount to do it, and since the stage was occupied with Paramount shoots during the day, the MGM crew had to come in at night. Haynes complained about the conditions. In order to get a decent recording, the soundstage had to be airtight and it was hot as a boiler room. Haynes would have to be padded down between takes because it was dripping with sweat. But the suffering was worthwhile. Starring Haynes as a master safecracker with a heart of gold, alias Jimmy Valentine grossed over five times its cost. Haynes had made the transition to talkies seamlessly, and 1929 would be the peak of his box office stardom. The trouble was still to come. More cataclysmic a transition for the studio system than sound was the transition to obeying the production code, the censorship system, first drafted by former Postmaster General Will Hayes in 1929. The code cautioned against critical or defamatory depictions of church or state. Crimes against actual laws and against Christian morality, it stated, should only be depicted in certain ways, and the perpetrators should always be seen being punished. In 1930, every studio in Hollywood agreed to follow the guidelines laid out by the code, but it was an empty promise. Everyone knew the Hayes office had no ability to punish violators of the code. If anything, while producers were waiting for the censors to come up with a way to enforce their Puritan code, movies got racier. But the existence of the code made studios more apt to use the morals clauses that were now standard elements of almost every performer's contract to scare stars into improving their public behavior. Most morals clauses read something like this. The artist shall perform the services herein contracted for in the manner that shall be conducive to the best interests of the producer and of the business in which the producer is engaged, and if the artist shall conduct himself either while rendering such services to the producer or in his private life in such a manner as to commit an offense involving moral turpitude under federal, state, or local laws or ordinances, or shall conduct himself in a manner that shall offend against decency, morality, or shall cause him to be held in public ridicule, scorn, or contempt, or that shall cause public scandal, then, and upon the happening of any of the events herein described, the producer may, at its option, and upon one week's notice to the artist, terminate this contract and the employment thereby created. Most stars signed the contract and then either tried to stay out of trouble or assumed that the studio wouldn't use the clause against them. But at the peak of his stardom in the late 1920s, 
Billy Haynes reportedly managed to get the morals clause removed from his contract entirely by refusing to sign it until it was. As a trade-off, MGM would only sign him to two-year extensions at a time, rather than the five-year contracts that were more standard. As early as 1926, Haynes's after-work life was making work for MGM's team of fixers and publicists. Some reports contend Haynes was rounded up in a vice squad raid of Pershing Square, then a notorious gay cruising spot, a raid which, if it happened, MGM kept out of the papers. But they couldn't stop Eleanor Glynn from speculating in her famous declaration as to who had the ineffable quality of it, which would lead to the phrase the it girl and the Clara Bow film it, that Haynes was itless. Whatever that even meant, at MGM, only good press was good press. Bad or even mildly critical press was a disaster requiring action. Mayer again asked Thalberg if they could just fire Haynes. But Thalberg thought that there had to be another solution. Maybe he could marry Joan Crawford. Crawford, not yet the massive star she'd become, was game. But Billy wasn't. Haynes was reportedly caught in another vice raid in 1929 at an underground gay bar. But this time he was with his frequent party pal, Constance Talmadge, sister-in-law of MGM corporate head, Nick Skank. Later that year, the first above-ground gay bar opened in Los Angeles, and Billy and Jimmy attended the gala opening in tuxedos. Mayer seethed, but he stayed quiet. In a matter of months, William Haynes would be crowned the top box office star of the year 1929. This was the peak of Haynes's stardom, and it didn't last long. His films began to slide at the box office over the course of 1930, and in 1931, Haynes' MGM contract was canceled, only for Haynes to be brought back to the studio as a featured player at a far reduced salary and billing. Why? That is up for debate. A decade earlier, Hollywood had barely survived a wave of scandals, including the Fatty Arbuckle rape trials, the drug problems of Mabel Normand and Olive Thomas, and the murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Now, in the early 1930s, it looked like it was happening again. Clara Bow's sex life was all over the papers. Mary Astor had a nervous breakdown after her husband died in a 1930 plane crash. And then right before Haynes' most recent arrest, F.W. Murnau, director of Sunrise, amongst other masterpieces, had died in a car crash. Murnau's 14-year-old houseboy had apparently been driving the car at the moment it plunged over a Santa Barbara cliff. Murnau was well-known around town to be gay, and rumors persist, despite evidence to the contrary, that the young male driver of the car lost control because of what Murnau was doing with his mouth at the time. Since the first wave of Hollywood scandals, studios like MGM had been more or less able to control the media. But beginning in 1930, new media outlets started to appear. The Hollywood Reporter emerged and became the first publication to refuse to publish studio press releases. They followed by launching an honest gossip column, reporting sightings of stars at speakeasies and so-called pansy clubs, including those that hosted drag shows. 
Female impersonators became all the rage in Hollywood nightlife in 1930. And while these clubs officially didn't serve alcohol, and not everyone who went to a club like La Boheme to see a floor show would be someone who exclusively had same-sex affairs, the papers reported lists of which stars were seen there as though it was an accusation. Publications that had previously played their role in projecting star personas without digging into the truth started becoming snippy. Photoplay claimed that Hollywood insiders all knew that Billy was, quote, moody as a prima donna, nuts on fancy furniture and antiques, and, most damningly, not like other bachelors. He runs his house himself, just like a housewife. With what seemed like the beginning of a moral panic fomenting and a depression going on, Moguls like Mayer felt they couldn't afford a boycott by religious groups, which is what had happened in the 1920s, until Will Hayes was appointed the industry's internal censorship czar. So the blind eye previously cast on stars whose personal lives flouted the morals clause suddenly disappeared. At exactly the wrong time, Billy got arrested again. He was reportedly caught at the Hollywood YMCA having sex with a sailor. I say reportedly because the arrest record, if it ever existed, does not exist now. Most people speculate that it was destroyed thanks to the intervention of MGM fixers like Eddie Mannix. In 1931, in an attempt to rebrand Haynes from the wisecracking post-college boy into a more adult romantic lead, Haynes was cast in a movie called Just a Gigolo, in which he played a trust fund playboy who makes a body bet with his uncle that if he could get a society princess to give up her virtue within a month, then he wouldn't have to get married. Haynes was told going in that he was to abandon his usual winking, wisecracking persona for this film. But it seems like he ignored that edict. Just a Gigolo, which debuted the song later covered by David Lee Roth, did okay, but it failed to turn around the impression that William Haynes's star was slipping. Haynes was informed that his contract wouldn't be renewed, and the trade papers said it was because the star was angling for more money. Then MGM agreed to take Billy back, but at a much reduced salary, and with his name demoted to below the titles of his films. He was forced to go on a dreaded personal appearance tour. He took up a strenuous diet and exercise regime, rationalizing that losing weight might help him appear younger and fresher. And most desperately, he reportedly proposed to actress Anita Page, who was 10 years younger than him and who thought of him as an older brother. Before giving Billy an answer, Page went to Louis B. Mayer for advice. Don't you know what he is? Mayor asked Paige. Paige responded, All I know is, he's my friend. She turned the proposal down. Many versions of Haynes' story say that at this point, in early 1933, Louis B. Mayer called Haynes into his office and told him that it was time for Billy to get serious, to drop Jimmy and get married. In this version of the story, Billy says, I am married. He chooses Jimmy over Mayer, walks out the door, and becomes Hollywood's most in-demand interior designer. 
William Haynes did become Hollywood's most in-demand interior designer after his career at MGM ended. But the rest of the story is up for debate. For years, everyone at MGM had known that William Haynes was gay and living with a man he loved. So why would Mayer make an ultimatum now? Joan Crawford would later say it was because Billy had refused to marry someone like her, which Mayer thought was necessary in order to shore up Haynes's clearly slipping credibility with audiences. But he did try to marry Anita Page, at least according to Anita Page. Members of the Hollywood gay scene at the time believed that Billy had taken the hit for Jimmy, who had been arrested in a bar or a park where he was known to cruise. But if that happened, it was covered up. What we do know is that Billy's star had dimmed. We know he was getting older, and he hadn't really successfully transitioned out of his Harvard boy persona. We know the Depression had everyone scared about profit margins, and most studios were cutting salaries, if not straight up canceling the pricey contracts of aging stars. We know that Irving Thalberg, Billy's ally at MGM, was recovering from a heart attack at the time, and that Mayer made a number of sweeping decisions while Thalberg was gone, kind of to show he could. We know that many other stars in Hollywood had gay relationships, but most presented themselves as straight when they were told to. Billy's old friend Archie Leach, for instance, is now acknowledged by many biographers to have lived as a gay man before he came to Hollywood and to have continued relationships with men after he became Cary Grant. But Cary Grant, and just about everyone else, were willing to play by the rules of the game that Louis B. Mayer and other studio moguls set. They were willing to marry women, in Cary Grant's case, several women, and keep their true private lives private. And we know that with the impending enforcement of the production code, which would happen in 1934, every studio was under pressure to make it seem like their houses were clean. Appearances of propriety became everything. And there would have been little incentive for even Irving Thalberg to protect a star he liked, but who wasn't bringing in huge profits and who threatened the studio's image of compliance with the morality police. When Thalberg came back from Europe, he had a chance to stay the execution of Haynes's contract, and he did nothing. And so William Haynes, the top box office star in all of Hollywood in 1929, found himself just four years later out of a job. Or at least out of the job that had made him famous. William Haynes had never aspired to be an actor, and once the rug was pulled out from under him at MGM, he got right back on his feet. In 1930, Billy had become part owner of an antique shop on La Brea Avenue. By that point, he had already turned his own home into a showroom for his exquisite taste, and his guests were always asking where they could buy things like the ones he had. So he gave them a place to do it. When his job at MGM disappeared, Haynes made a couple of minor movies on Poverty Row, but he couldn't find work at the major studios. Some have speculated that all of the moguls were in cahoots to punish bad seeds. So Billy did what he could do, and he became an interior designer. He'd go into a starlet's house and toss out the gaudy animal prints and gilded ornaments that they bought with their first flush of cash because they thought that was fancy, and replace everything with genuinely fancy stuff, 
high quality, sophisticated simplicity with select pops of color or flashy accents. Hand-painted wallpaper became one of his signatures, as did low-to-the-ground sitting rooms, outfitted with ottoman tables perfect for casual entertaining. Occasionally, his antiques and art were borrowed for use in movies. Paintings personally owned by William Haynes lined the walls of Terra in Gone with the Wind. Above all else, Billy understood how people liked to live, and he was able to create spaces in which they could do it. Billy and Jimmy enjoyed a high position in Hollywood for decades. Some members of the Hollywood community shunned them for living openly, but their true friends stayed loyal. They continued to attend parties at San Simeon and at Joan Crawford's house. And they stayed together until Billy's death in 1973. In fact, when his lover of nearly 50 years was gone, Jimmy Shields didn't know what to do with himself. Joan Crawford tried to help, but it was no use. He soon committed suicide. He left behind a note that said, It's no good without Billy. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is part of the Panoply Network. You can find all of Panoply's podcast offerings at itunes.com slash panoply. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research intern is Allison Gemmel, and this episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. Special thanks to our special guests. Craig Mazin returned as Louis B. Mayer, and we were super excited to welcome Will Wheaton, who played William Haynes. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, and please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, where you can also rate and review the show, and you can also find You Must Remember This on pretty much any podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Will you still love me? Or-